Good morning, Woodmont. Would you join me in prayer? Loving God, open our hearts and minds today. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I want to begin today with a story. It's a story about something that happened at this church back in the 1950s when the civil rights movement was heating up here in the South. Our founding pastor, Dr. Frank Jawoda, uh, had come down from Mayfield, Kentucky, the Christian church there, to serve as the first pastor of Woodmont. And after he had been here for a, a number of years, I don't know the exact date, he was asked a question by a very influential lay leader in this church. The person said, Dr. Jawoda, if an African-American person walked down our aisle and wanted to join this church, how would you respond? And without thinking twice, Dr. Jawoda said, I would extend my hand in Christian fellowship and welcome him or her into our church. To which the lay leader abruptly said, wrong answer, preacher. Well, this deeply bothered Dr. Jawoda. He went home that night to the parsonage and he told his wife, Vivian, about what had happened. And he told her, he said, you know, I don't know if this church is what I thought it was. This person is really upset with me right now. And, and uh, sweetie, maybe we've made a mistake. I, I don't know if we're going to be able to, to stay here. I don't know if, if, if the way that I feel about this issue is going to be welcomed here at, at this church. See, what the lay leader had said to Dr. Jawoda really hurt him and pained him. It bothered him so much. But he was not willing to change his answer. Well, late that night, there was a knock on the parsonage door. And Dr. Jawoda went to the door, and he opened it, and it was that same lay leader. And he told Dr. Jawoda that he had been wrong in what he had said, and that Dr. Jawoda was right. There's a lot going on in our culture and in our world right now. There's a lot of emotions, there's a lot of pain. We are continuing our sermon series in the book of James that we started a, a few weeks back, and today we come to James chapter four, where James talks about conflict. He says, those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? You want something and do not have it, so you commit murder. And you covet something and cannot attain it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts. See, James is very much concerned about matters of the heart. He's very much concerned about the reasons that people don't get along in our world and in our culture. He's concerned about intent. 
He's also very concerned about the difference between friendship with the world and friendship with God. And as people of faith who live in the world, we feel and we experience this tension all the time. I'll be honest with you. This week I've had a really hard time writing a sermon. I've had a hard time writing a sermon in light of everything that has been going on in our nation. The hurt, the pain, the divisions, the riots, the looting, the lawlessness, the sense that things are out of control or feel out of control. I've spent a lot of time in prayer and just being quiet, just being still. So instead, what I want to do today is share with you parts of a letter. It's a famous letter. It was written back in April of 1963 by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King as he sat in a jail cell in Birmingham, Alabama. He wrote this letter to fellow clergymen during the heat of the civil rights protests. He was frustrated. He was disappointed. He was angry. But in the midst of it all, he still held on to hope. Hope that things would get better. Hope that progress would continue to be made. Hope that all was not lost. Hope that he could count on his fellow ministers and clergymen to stand up for what is right. And I want to share with you some of what he said. I can't share all of what he said because it's too long, but I want to share with you the highlights of this famous letter that I believe we need to hear again today. My dear fellow clergymen, while confined here in the Birmingham City Jail, I came across your recent statement calling our present activities unwise and untimely. Seldom, if ever, do I pause to answer criticism of my work and ideas, but since I feel that you are men of genuine goodwill and your criticisms are sincerely set forth, I would like to answer your statement in what I hope will be patient and reasonable terms. Basically, I am in Birmingham because injustice is here. Just as the prophets of the 8th century BC left their villages and carried their thus said the Lord far beyond the boundaries of their hometowns, and just as the Apostle Paul left his village of Tarsus and carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to the far corners of the Greco-Roman world, so am I, compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my own hometown, and like Paul, I must constantly respond to the Macedonian call for aid. Moreover, I am cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. 
Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Never again can we afford to live with the narrow, provincial, outside agitator idea. Anyone who lives inside the United States can never be considered an outsider anywhere within its bounds. In any nonviolent campaign, there are four basic steps. First, collection of all the facts to determine whether injustices are alive. Second, negotiations. Third, self-purification. And then fourth, direct action. We have gone through all these steps in Birmingham. Birmingham is probably the most thoroughly segregated city in the United States. Its ugly record of police brutality is known in every section of the country. Its unjust treatment of Negroes in the courts is a notorious reality. There have been more unresolved bombings of Negro homes and churches in Birmingham than in any city in this nation. These are the hard, brutal, and unbelievable facts. On the basis of these conditions, Negro leaders sought to negotiate with the city fathers, but the political leaders consistently refused to engage in good faith negotiations. You may well ask, why direct action? Why sit-ins and marches? Isn't negotiation a better path? You're exactly right in your call for negotiation. Indeed, this is the purpose of direct action. Nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis and establish such creative tensions that a community that has constantly refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. Just as Socrates felt that it was necessary to create a tension in the mind so that individuals could rise from the bondage of myths and half-truths to the unfettered realm of creative analysis and objective appraisal, we must see the need for nonviolent gadflies to create the kind of tension in society that will help men rise from the dark depths of prejudice and racism to the majestic heights of understanding and brotherhood. My friends, I must say to you that we have not made a single gain in civil rights without legal and nonviolent pressure. History is the long and tragic story of the fact that privileged groups seldom give up their privileges voluntarily. Individuals may see the moral light and give up their unjust posture but as Reinhold Niebuhr has reminded us, groups are more immoral than individuals. We know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Frankly, I have never yet engaged in a direct action movement that was well-timed. According to the timetable of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of segregation. For years now, I have heard the word, wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with a piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. It has been a tranquilizing thalotomide, relieving the emotional stress for a moment only to give birth to an ill-informed infant of frustration. We must come to see with the distinguished jurist of yesterday the justice too long delayed is justice denied. We have waited for more than 340 years for our constitutional and God-given rights. The nations of Asia and Africa are moving with jet-like sp speed toward the goal of political independence, and 
We will creep at horse and buggy pace toward the gaining of a cup of coffee at a lunch counter. Perhaps it's easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait, but when you have seen vicious mob lynches on your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, brutalize, and even kill your black brothers and sisters with impunity, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammered as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and see the tears welling up in her little eyes when she is told that Funtown is closed to colored children and see the depressing clouds of inferiority begin to form in her little mental sky and see her begin to distort her little personality by unconsciously developing a bitterness towards white people. When you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who is asking an agonizing pathos, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you. When you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white men and colored when your first name becomes nigger and your middle name becomes boy, however old you are, and your last name becomes John. And when your wife and mother are never given the respected title of Mrs., when you are harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro, living constantly at tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next, and plagued with inner fears and outer resentments, when you're fighting forever a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over. And men are no longer willing to be plunged into an abyss of injustice where they experience the bleakness of corroding despair. I hope, sirs, you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. You express a great deal of anxiety over our willingness to break laws. This is certainly a legitimate concern. Since we so diligently urge people to obey the Supreme Court's decision of 1954 outlawing segregation in the public schools, at first glance, it may seem rather paradoxical for us to consciously break laws. One may one ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and still obey others? The answer lies in the fact that there fire two types of laws, just and unjust. I would be the brat to advocate obeying just laws. One is not only a legal but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. Now, what is the difference between the two? How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in the terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal law and natural law. Any law that uplifts human personality is just. 
Any law that degrades human personality is unjust. All segregation statutes are unjust because segregation distorts the soul and damages the personality. It gives the segregate actor a false sense of superiority and the segregated a false sense of inferiority. Segregation, to use the terminology of the Jewish philosopher Martin Buber, substitutes an I-it relationship for an I-thou relationship and ends up relegating persons to the status of things. Hence, segregation is not only politically, economically, and sociologically unsound, it is morally wrong and awful. I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must confess that over the last few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I can't agree with you with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically feels that he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by the myth of time, and who constantly advises the Negro to wait until a more convenient season Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. The Negro has many pin-up resentments and latent frustrations. He has to get them out. So let him march sometime. Let him have his prayer pilgrimage to the city hall Understand why he must have sit-ins and freedom rides if his repressed emotions do not come out in these nonviolent ways. They will come out in ominous expressions of violence. This is not a threat. It is a fact of history. So I have not said to my people, get rid of your discontent, but I have tried to say that this normal and healthy discontent can be channeled through the creative outlet of nonviolent direct action. In spite of my shattered dreams of the past, I came to Birmingham with the hopes that the white religious leadership in the community would see the justice of our cause and with deep moral concern serve as the channel through which our just grievances could get to the power structure. I had hoped that each of you would understand, but again, I have been disappointed. I've heard numerous religious leaders of the South call upon their worshipers to comply with a desegregation decision because it is the law. But I have longed to hear white ministers declare, follow this decree because integration is morally right and the Negro is your brother. In the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I have watched white churchmen stand on the sideline and merely mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I have heard so many ministers say, those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. And I have watched so many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion 
which made a strange distinction between body and soul, the sacred and the secular. I hope this letter finds you strong in the faith. I also hope that circumstances will soon make it possible for me to meet each of you, not as an integrationist or a civil rights leader, but as a fellow clergyman and Christian brother. Let us all hope that the dark clouds of racial prejudice will soon pass away and the deep fog of misunderstanding will be lifted from our fear-drenched communities and in some not too distant tomorrow, the radiant stars of love and brotherhood will shine over our great nation with all of their scintillating beauty. Yours for the cause of peace and brotherhood, Martin Luther King, Jr. Friends, I hope we can hear these words from this famous letter in light of what we are experiencing in 2020. And as a church, I want to challenge all of us to engage these issues and to ask, what can we do to keep moving things forward? Let's not pretend like all has been lost. There's a lot of amazing progress that has been made in our uh, culture, in our community, but we are called to do more. And so may these words of Dr. King challenge us to do more and to do our part to bring more peace, more racial equality, and more justice into this culture. Would you pray with me? Loving God, thank you for these famous words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. May we hear them now, and may we act upon them. In Christ's name, amen.